Well, we'll be looking this evening at that passage that we read from in Genesis chapter 39. The events that took place in Potiphar's household and surrounding and concerning Potiphar's wife. And we note that a whole chapter is given to the account, to the events that took place there. Though there are, of course, some unsavory elements, it's there for our learning. And actually, you'll see... I trust so many positive points can be drawn out of it. For example, it provides a model of behavior for the Christian in this fallen world. What an example. What an exemplary way Joseph conducted himself there. And what a standard that is for us throughout all the ages if we could seek to emulate him as far as we possibly can. Well, we set the scene. I think uh, these events are familiar to most of us. We know that Joseph had become resented by his brothers because he was Jacob's favorite. That was one of the reasons. There were others also. He was the son of his old age, we're told, in Genesis 37, 3 and 4. And we read there that uh, that Jacob made him this coat of many colors. Let me read that to you. Verses 3 and 4. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So there was this great hostility to him. Then in addition to that, there were, of course, Joseph's dreams. He was charged as being this dreamer as if he was a a young man who lived in delusion, who had a very high estimation of himself, the brothers not recognizing, and even Jacob, that these were God-given, these were revelatory dreams. And uh, we know about them, how that uh, he had dreams whereby the sheaves that were gathered in, the wheat sheaves of his brethren, bowed down to his. And the picture was very apparent to them, that sometime in the future, or at some point, they would have to bow down and respect this youngest brother, and they resented that. And the sun, moon, and eleven stars, we're told, also bowed down to him. And even Jacob rebuked him for what uh, this seemed to be his, uh, perhaps his arrogance and his pride. And his brothers hated him and envied him. And so that was the kind of family dynamic that sets the scene for the events that will follow, which we're familiar with, I think. But uh, we know then that at some point, uh, Joseph was sent by Jacob to Seshem, where he believed that the brothers had taken the flocks. It seems apparent there were no real ranch or farm boundaries in those days, and people could wander near and far to find pasture for their flocks. And so he went off on this errand to uh, see how his brethren did, perhaps to bring him, uh, bring them some refreshments and news from home and so on. When he arrived there, he found that they'd moved on to Dothan. And uh, a plan had been concocted when they saw him coming, when they realized that he was coming, and now alone, not under the protection of his father, not at home, 
now isolated, now was their opportunity so that that ill will and hatred could find expression. And they concocted that plan, didn't they? To, first of all, to kill him, but that was modified to sell him into slavery. And you'll know how they put him into a pit in preparation for that, but their plans didn't quite work out because the Midianites, as they passed by, saw him and pulled him out and took him to Egypt where Potiphar bought him. Well, it's a little insight into the culture, isn't it? Slavery, of course, is abhorred now, but uh, culturally and historically it was kind of the norm, and it happened almost all the time. So Joseph found himself as just a commodity, and there was profit to be made when he could be sold down in Egypt. But then we look at the passage that we have, and... Uh, we find this, my heading for this first point really, is the Lord was with him. We read that in verse 2 of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And uh, that phrase or similar words is repeated a number of times throughout the chapter. And it's absolutely key. Without the presence of God, without the Lord being with him, he would not have fared as he did. And uh, that's a lesson for us. The Lord must be with us if we will prosper spiritually, if our souls will be kept, if our purposes according to his will will be achieved. We cannot do it alone. So the Lord was with him. But of course, he had to play his part. It was reciprocal. He had responsibilities. We can't just vaguely say, the Lord is with me, I'm a Christian, the Lord is with me, and think no more of it. We must think about the implications of that. What are our, our responsibilities? What are our duties? There must be obedience, there must be honor for him, for his word. And as we return that to him, our praise and worship and loyalty, genuineness, sincerity, then we can be assured that the Lord will be with us, and how much he needed the Lord to be with him. What a precarious and dangerous situation he found himself in. Well, the setting, we read it, he was far away from home. Rather, as those Israelites we considered the, this morning, but they were taken en masse, <coughs> and we didn't see their particularly spiritual light. We were looking at there at their mainly at an unconverted people. But we're looking here at a spiritual man and how different it was. He was far away from home. A slave in a foreign culture. Think about it. Foreign language. I'm sure that he didn't know the Egyptian at that point. It's evident that he acquired the language perfectly so that he could pass himself as an Egyptian much later on when the brethren came after the famine. But at that point, it was all new to him. Foreign religion. He knew that he, his people, Israel, had the God of all the earth. Abraham and Isaac were with him. He knew that God had blessed and favored his nation. He knew that. But he was surrounded by false gods. How did that pain his heart? Well, aren't we in the same situation today? Aren't we, in a sense, very far from our spiritual homes? 
Now, thankfully, God has provided us oases, respites, churches. So we're not in quite as bad a predicament as Joseph of old was. But in a sense, we're in a foreign country, aren't we? Foreign values, false gods, idolatry, immorality. No doubt Egyptian culture, as with all those old cultures, was very immoral, very superstitious, very wicked. How did he deport himself? Was he downcast? Was he despondent? Was he complaining? No, the opposite. He rallied. He accepted his situation. And that's key for us. How easy it is for us to feel sorry for ourselves in the world. Our lot is not a fair one. Uh, we have to contend with this unbelieving world. Our witness is not listened to. We're not respected. But that's not how Joseph behaved himself. And that began to show. He could have been uh, so complaining. And so we need to live as he lived. How can God have allowed this, we might ask ourselves. Well, it says he was a prosperous man. Well, whether that means materially, we're not too sure. Uh, he was a young man. I ought to have said that beforehand. He was only about 17 at the time that he set off, or at least in the chapter or two before these events are recorded. A very young man, perhaps only in late teens. And yet he had such a mature faith. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And his master understood that it was because of the Lord's blessing. There it is in verse 3. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now, what a thing that is, that an unbelieving Egyptian man who would have had been brought up with allegiance to the idols of Egypt could recognize that this young man had something different. His Lord, how did he know about the Lord? Perhaps he had heard some news from Abraham and Isaac, perhaps. But more likely, Joseph told them. Joseph witnessed. Joseph shared about his Lord, about his God, about his experience. Joseph had had those dreams, don't forget. And that's key, that's vital. Joseph understood he wasn't being precocious. He wasn't rising above his station. He understood that the Lord had favored him and had given him this commission. He knew not how it was going to be fulfilled. Isn't that a Christian too? We have a commission to live in this world as godly people. We may not know, certainly as we set out early on in life, how the Lord might use us. We don't know what the end of our journey will be where it will take us. But we trust in him that he knows and that he will guide us and that he will provide for our every need. So he had this full confidence. I wonder if people around us can say, the Lord is with that person. That's why they're unflappable. That's why they don't get over-anxious. That's why they're calm. That's why they seem to have this kind of settled peace can that be said of us well it should be it ought to be it's true that often we succumb to temper and we're despondent and perhaps we hide our light but here is the ultimate example that people around us in the unbelieving world 
can say that the Lord is with us. Why does this colleague of mine at work, this family member, why are their affairs working out so well? Not that they necessarily have an ideal and perfect life. They may have challenges of illness themselves, family members, financial difficulties, unforeseen circumstances, but they seem to go through them all with a kind of calm dependence on the Lord. So that's a point we could make before we really get into the uh, essential account here. The Lord was with him. The Lord will bless our honest labors. He sees them. Our due diligence. He will honor that. So we need to stand out. He stood out from the other servants. He was clearly, as the, as the passage tells us, the preeminent servant. There were others in the household. But he arose to be the senior servant because of the honorable way in which he conducted himself. And we should be the same. And uh, even Potiphar benefited from Joseph's faith. Faith, We read there in verses 5 to 6, came to pass from the time that it had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed, there it is, the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. We think of him as a kind of household a servant, but in the field. It seems he'd had responsibilities that extended beyond the household. Other projects, perhaps uh, agriculture and other uh, events that he was involved with. And uh, it should be the case that where a Christian is, there will be benefit even to others around us. They will benefit from your demeanor, from your conversation. We trust that the Christian will keep the conversation and the tone of any association at a high level. In the world, how quickly it descends to base things. I'm sure we've all experienced this in the workplace. How quickly people will speak of unsavory things. How soon they will discuss things that we can't be comfortable with. Perhaps we should be that salt and light. Well, here then, of course, we come to the trial of faith, the central events that we need to look at. In verse 7, we read, It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But here's a point. Everything was going so well. Everything was set up. If it was a career path, a job, everything was just doing very well. He was really at the top of his game. He was going to be very influential. He had a tremendous amount of respect. He hadn't done anything wrong. And that's important. He was not culpable in any way. But a great problem came to him. Doesn't that happen in our lives? Unforeseen things that we didn't see coming or had little notion of can suddenly intrude out of nowhere. Next week, tomorrow, how often we can relate such things. Just uh, all of a sudden, perhaps a serious illness, a grave setback, loss of work, unforeseen. We didn't know. And that's what happens here. This seemed to come out of the blue. We don't have enough information to, uh, to suspect that there was a build-up to this. 
It seems that Potiphar's wife had been scheming and planning this thing. And when she made her approach, it was the first that he knew about it. But it was going to set a chain of events in place that were not at all favorable to Joseph. And that's life. It can happen to us. And that's going to be another test for us. Already far away, already on his own, a young man, having done so well, now a greater challenge. Maybe that's the way the Lord works with us. Maybe he proves us for a time. Maybe we have to show our consistency for a while. And then the great trial, the great temptation. Are we ready for it? How will we respond to it? And that's what we need to look at it, look at here. So he was highly appreciated and respected, but not apparently by Potiphar's wife. And there will always be those who have absolutely no regard for our testimony, for our faith, for our position. They might resent it. She clearly saw it as not an issue at all, though her husband understood that this was a God of honor and justice and uprightness and lawfulness. She must have heard those things, but she chose to entirely disregard them. And we will come across people like that. Our testimony will fall on deaf ears. People will look at us blankly, and they will have another agenda driven by different motives. And so, no matter how well we behave, there will always be those who will not... Uh, give us any credit for those things. And we need to expect that also. And they might, as with Potiphar's wife, seek to undermine us and to bring us down. So here was suddenly a test, great pressure to submit, to go along with her plan. And we need to see how he dealt with these things. What would he do? And what we're looking at here is not only Joseph's deportment, not only his wonderful example of Christian behavior in a fallen world, but what we're beginning to look at now are strategies. They're strategies to resist temptation. We are going to face temptation. Very unlikely anything quite like this, but the principles survive. The principles are alive. The dynamic equivalence, if you like, the lessons are for all of us. Whatever the temptation, whatever type of the temptation, a lot of the temptations that we go through are mental ones or in our minds. We're drawn to think about certain things. And this, these strategies apply to that uh, thought life as well as our literal outward life and those situations that we might find ourselves in. And so we look at his strategies and his responses. And there are going to be no real surprises here, I don't think. But the most obvious one is there in verse 8. To her invitation, he refused. And that's the first strategy when temptation comes. Don't toy with it. Don't be neutral indifferent, not respond to it, perhaps thinking, well, this isn't really going to affect me. I won't particularly do one thing or the other. No, be definite. 
refuse it when that temptation comes. This is a great temptation to a moral fall, but it could be a small matter. This applies to all temptations. So, first point, refuse it. Have nothing to do with it. Decline it. Say no. And that's the counsel of the scripture. And so must we. A straight re uh, rejection of the temptation. And then he reasoned. And he adds to that. And he said to her, he, he gave her his reasoning. Whether she was worthy of that or not, was he over-optimistic to think that she would see the point? Step back, realized she'd overstepped the mark, that her behavior was unreasonable. Well, it, what didn't turn out to be the case, but nevertheless, he spoke to her and told her why. In verse 8, Behold, my master wotteth not, doesn't know what is with me in the house. He's given all that he has to me. There's none greater in the house than I. Neither hath he kept anything back from me but thee, because thou art his wife. That's, of course, that's beyond my province. Of course, that's nothing that I must be involved with. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Aren't these wonderful words? That's what we need to say out to ourselves when we're being drawn into temptation. When we're beginning to slip, when we're beginning to yield, maybe not a temptation quite like this, maybe not a moral one, but it could be in this day and age. We have to say this to ourselves, as perhaps our passions are, are stirred, as we are tempted, as we are under pressure. We say this, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Say that to yourselves. How then could you proceed beyond that point? How shameful it would be. This is strengthening reasoning. You're building up, you're marshalling your, your self-will. You're saying, no, this is absolutely impossible. I can't do that. And that's one of the strategies that we need to do to resist evil. We need to uh, be careful. We have so much. That's the other thing, really, that uh, Joseph was saying there. I have everything. I've been so favored. I'm very aware of that. Uh, your husband has promoted me. I have so much responsibility. There's nothing that I need. How can I want more? And we may need to make that argument. Hasn't God given us enough? Hasn't he furnished us with everything that is sufficient for us? But it is a human tendency to overlook what God has given us and say, no, but I want more. I want what this person has. I look over to this person or that family, and I want what they have. But that's not how Joseph reasoned. He said, I've got everything. I can't, how can I ask for more? And certainly not something that is not my property and uh, belongs to Potiphar. So we need to uh, reason along these lines also. We have an, he has an obligation to Potiphar. He hadn't that obligation. He had been given tremendous trust. And he'd earned it on merit. So he would betray not only God, 
but Potiphar. He was a heathen man, but nevertheless we owe it to him. Why could, how could he betray him? What a, what a sword or dagger to the heart that would be. And so we need to say what it is. It's great wickedness. And uh, we have to call it out and say what it is and call it what it is. But let's think about it. He could have succumbed. He could have made a number of arguments and reasons. And that's mostly what happens when we fall into sin. I think it's very rare that there's a temptation and we just immediately fall and succumb. Now, we, we reason with ourselves. We talk ourselves into it. We justify it. We argue the case. And we convince ourselves it's not so bad after all. And if it is a sin, it's only a minor one. And it won't affect anybody or anything. And we diminish it. So he could have done these things also. He could have said, it's not so bad. It wouldn't affect me that much, perhaps on only this one occasion. No one need know. I'm a young man. I'm on my own. I'm far from home. He could have said all of those things. He could have even reasoned this, this way. You know what? If I form an alliance with Potiphar's wife, I'll have even more influence. I'll have even more favor. I'll have great insights into the household. He could have argued all those points. And that's a thing we're not to do. Be very careful when you start to make little arguments to justify that fall, that slip. Stop further back. It's been called evil. How can I sin against my God? No, don't get into reasoning in those ways. It cannot be. That's how we need to respond to these things. But there's more, really. You might think, that's the end of it. What a bold stand he's made. She would surely not attempt this again. He'd made his position absolutely clear. Clear-cut. Couldn't have been plainer, could it? And yet, amazingly, she persist persisted. Perhaps she thought, well, this is just a young man. I'll wear him down. It's just his religious background, just a conscience. I can overcome that. And so we find that the passage goes on. In verse 10, it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day. And so we need to be ready for the long haul in the battle of temptation sometimes. Sometimes the Lord is good to us and we face a temptation and we pray about it and we refuse it and it's gone. But perhaps more often it'll come back again. Perhaps it hasn't been quite dismissed. Perhaps it still approaches us in, an, in another time, wears us down. That's the strategy of the devil, isn't it? He'll reason with us. He'll appeal to us. And day by day, we need to resist temptation. Every day, we need to pray for help. And that's what happened here. Day by day, that, listen to this. Here's the strategy again. And she spake to Joseph day by day, verse 10, that he hearkened not unto her. Strategies to resist temptation. Don't listen. You might still hear that voice. 
You might not be able to remove the temptation. It might occur to you. It might be presented to you. It might well up from within you, though you wouldn't want it to. Hearken not to it. Don't listen to it. Ignore it. It might be difficult. Put your focus on something else. How did he resist her day by day? I would imagine he got on with his work. I would think that he pursued his responsibilities and his tasks and busied himself with those things. And as she spoke to him, he didn't listen to her. And that's what we need to do. Or to be with her. Or to be with her. Neither to lie with her or to be with her. Because he could modify this and say, all right, no, well, I'm not going to do that. Obviously, I'm not going to be unfaithful. But this poor woman, obviously a lonely person, she's got some issues. You know what? I'll spend some time with her. Uh, unwise. Very foolish. So that seems to be a very subtle argument. Well, I won't do the sin, but, you know, I'll stay around and I'll entertain it. And uh, we'll see what happens. No, no, no. Don't toy with sin. So he wouldn't even be with her. And uh, those are some of the strategies that we need to consider. Then we come to the decisive moment where she then finally decides to take matters into her own hands and to make that bold move, that desperate bid. And it could be humanly the strongest battle that he has to face. Now this woman is really approaching close to him. Now there's an opportunity to sin in private. And that's the other thing that the account tells us, that all the other servants were not in the household. There was none to see, perhaps beforehand. There would have been a degree of shame and accountability. But now, no one need know. That's another argument we make. No one need know about this. Particularly if it's the inward thoughts. No one knows what I'm thinking, what I'm dreaming about, what I'm imagining. And it might not be an immoral thing. It might be a hostility, an envious thought, a discontented thought. And you might indulge it because nobody knows. And no one need ever know. But no, we must at all costs resist these things. So she made that strong and final assault upon him. And what's his final strategy? We learn from this also. This is key and very helpful. And sometimes we have to do this, maybe not literally, but maybe sometimes literally. He fled. He just got out of there. He didn't say, well, let's calm down now. Let's talk about this. and Don't be silly. He just got out of there. He just realized the moment had come. He had to get away from this dangerous situation. And perhaps there are times that we need to do that. What did he do? He followed New Testament counsel. Let me read to you some scriptures from Paul. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Flee fornication. Flee. Don't stroll away. Don't back off. Flee it. Have no time, no uh, attention at all. 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee from idolatry. So a range of sins. Flee from it. Get away from it. 
Depart from it. Have nothing to do with it. Don't be an idolater. Then literally idols, but today the idols of our age. Those things that we would give our love and attention and affection to. Flee from it. Don't linger there because you will soon be an idol worshipper again. 1 Timothy 6.11 O man of God, flee these things. The things he's speaking about are the love of money. So again, you can see a list of different temptations this could apply to. But flee from it. Paul doesn't use language lightly. This is an emergency. Don't have anything to do with it. And then the final one, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Perhaps that was Joseph's text, wasn't it? Get out urgently. Your soul is in danger. Cry out to the Lord and get out. That's sometimes how we have to deal with things. Well, we need to conclude. My final heading might be faith rewarded. How was his faith rewarded? Well, for his stand, for his great moral stand, had he gone along with her, all would have been fine. Potiphar would have come home, everything would have ticked over nicely, he would have been back at work the next morning, so on and so forth. But instead, his reward was to incur the wrath of Potiphar, to have his account disbelieved, presuming he was given an opportunity for, to, to give that. It doesn't say he was. But she, Potiphar's wife's account, was a lie, a pack of lies. And that was believed. And as a result, Joseph was cast into prison. So that was the reward. Was it worth it? Of course it was. The reward for making a stand for Christ might be, for you and I, a loss of privilege, a loss of respect, of authority, a demotion. We might be outcast. That's how the saints of the Lord always were. Wouldn't you rather obey your master and be outcast? That was his reward. But the Lord was with him, and we see these this term again and again. I'll read it shortly. So from being well-favored and trusted, he was thrown into prison. But look at this straight away. He was thrown into prison in verse 20, the very next verse. But the Lord was with Joseph. Isn't that lovely? The Lord was with him in all this. The Lord had been with him, actually, through that entire episode. The Lord hadn't deserted him. The Lord had honored his stand. And the Lord had overseen the events that were to follow. He hadn't spared him from the consequences. But even in that, the Lord was with him. And that's a great uh, help for us. We live to the one that sees all. And we stand by him. And what we see here, almost straight away, is that uh, the setup in the prison then becomes a copy of what happened in Potiphar's household. Even in prison, he had a testimony. Even in prison, where he was incarcerated, the jailers saw this was an upright man. They probably realized he'd been unfairly imprisoned, but who were they to challenge that sentence? And once again, he was given great position of responsibility. 
the keeper in verse 23 of the prison looked not to anything that was done under his hand, just like Potiphar, because the Lord was with him. See that term again? And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. You see, he'd kept his commandment. He'd kept his mission. He knew that somewhere down the line, he was to be blessed. And through this route and others, you know the ensuing history of the famines and so on, the seven years famine, you know that in the fullness of time, he was promoted and he was eminent and he was a type of Christ. He became the savior of his people. Those brethren that were, who experienced famine in Canaan came to him. He provided for them. And they settled in Egypt. And they were blessed all because he resisted those temptations. All because he had a sense of mission and purpose. He knew he was a son of God. And if we have that sense, no matter what befalls us, whether it be prison, disadvantage, whatever it is, that in the fullness of time, God will honor our testimony and use us and bless us. Well, really, I think I've said as much as I can this evening, but that may, may that be a help to each one of us. Amen. Sing our final hymn, number 700. Hymn number 700, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end.
dear Heavenly Father, help us to learn from thy servant of old and to emulate, to copy, to follow his godly behavior. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the love of God, our Heavenly Father, the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit rest and remain with each one of us, now and forevermore. Amen.